0: Welcome to the Subtle Cane Podcast, a refuge in the land of propaganda, a beacon of reason. Here's your host, the curious but never spurious Aaron Smith. Well, welcome back, my friends. Today is really a special day for me and for the Subtle Cane Podcast because today we are joined by Mr. James Corbett of the Corbett Report. Now, I have to give a quick aside here, just uh, a short story for you. You know, I planned for this interview for a while, and I really made sure my ducks were in a row, or or thought they were. Now, good to his word, James called at the preordained time, and even though I had run a test right before the call on my system, when it happened, my recording capabilities absolutely failed me. It was Quite honestly, horrifying. And I want to apologize up front for the sound quality on my voice uh, over the course of this interview. But being the gracious and patient man that he is, Mr. Corbett recorded on his end and shared the file with me. And so after probably suffering three or four minor strokes and wondering why I was ever born, the interview did proceed. Now, please be sure to check out the show notes for links and information about the topics we discuss and to Mr. Corbett's work now without further ado let's get into episode 18 of the subtle cane podcast interview with James Corbett and here he is the man who puts the sea in challenging the narrative Mr. James Corbett of the Corbett Report thank you for joining us today sir and thank you for the work that you're doing in the name of truth seeking and the value of value of human dignity and autonomy welcome of the Subtle Cane Podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me on. Pleasure to talk to you.
0: I have to say, honestly, I was a little surprised uh, at the response and your willingness to come on the Subtle Cane Podcast in its fledgling state, as it were. It's it's much appreciated, much appreciated.
1: Well, I, uh, I do appreciate people as I have always said, and it continues to be a core part of my message, I just want more people to be involved in the conversation. So I always appreciate and I'm glad to see people starting up and starting to get into this this space for themselves. Rather than just listening and being spectators, I want people to become active participants in this process. And if they can do so by uh, starting a new podcast, why not? And I'll I'll help to support that.
0: Yeah, and and I have to say that That just proves that you're a man who walks the talk. And when you say get involved, speak up, do what you can, um, you really helped me stay the course and encouraged me because you get a little bit of a pod fade after a couple months when you're working on getting things together. And um, as I said, much appreciated. And I want to just say for the listeners, a little background. Your country of origin is Canada, but you've been in Japan now, I guess, about 17 years, it sounds like.
1: I think that has Um, to be updated to 18 because it's 2022 now. Oh,
0: (laughs) all right. And over 9 million downloads uh, last I looked on YouTube before they asked you for not uh, towing the proverbial line. I I believe
1: uh, you mean 90 million.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Uh, Also a prolific podcaster, documentarian and have a website that is honestly a, a treasure trove of research and resources, and um, just uh, an amazing library of work. I suggest everybody goes to CorvetteReport.com and takes a look. That uh, takes a look at that. Now, I've been following your work for a couple of years now. My uncle introduced me to it, and uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you've been way ahead of the curve on multiple topics. But um, one that really presents itself as imminently pressing, would be the biosecurity state. And when I say ahead of the curve, just for one uh, example, I'd I'd point to episode 86 in 2009, Medical Martial Law. Do you want to give a brief summary of how you got onto this topic and how you were able to be so ahead of the curve on this
1: Well, I claim absolutely no foresight on my own behalf on that. I was just following the lead of other researchers and what had been suggested by people who went before me. So in that podcast itself, you can hear me citing other uh, researchers and what they've – said about this in the past, including even the infamous Alex Jones. And in my defense, I would say the Alex Jones of 2007 was very different than the Alex Jones of 2022. But at any rate, (laughs) uh, it had been talked about before. So I was just putting together pieces that had been laid out there. But having said that, yes, there were very, very, very few people out there putting those pieces together back in the early mid 2000s. I mean that that was um not a topic that was on many people's radar, but it was once you start to actually collect the threads of that, it's it's just completely evident. It was in fact, I think baked into the cake at least from the point of the anthrax attacks onwards. Once that became Part of sort of tacked on to the 9-11 terror scare scenario, I think it was pretty inevitable that this was going to be one of the driving forces uh, of organization for the state in years to come. And you could see that if you actually traced a lot of the people involved in the anthrax events of 2001, including the people running the dark winter simulation exercise that was held in the summer of 2001, a few months before the anthrax attacks, simulating a terrorist smallpox event. Uh, that a lot of those exact same characters started to then create and then populate the positions of legislative authority and government um, power uh, that then went on to set up the infrastructure for the medical martial law state that and then presided over the COVID-19 response. So there's a lot of historical parallels and linkages there that are perfectly uh, observable in hindsight, um, but there were. Relatively few people looking at it before COVID-19.
0: Yeah, I know one of the things that um, you had pointed out was the 2001, the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act um, from Georgetown and Johns Hopkins Universities for the CDC and sort of the the legal framework that they were already instituting in, in 2001 or looking to institute in any event.
1: That's right. So for people who don't know this, this was legislation that was drafted up that was not legislation that was directly forwarded. It was drafted up as a model state health emergency powers act, which could then be forwarded in the state governments of various states around the U.S. and was. And the last time I checked, I believe it had been passed in something like 40 different states. Um, but it was exactly talking along the lines of what we have seen in the past couple of years, the idea that in the state of a declared health crisis, the governor would have powers to quarantine and even forcibly uh, vaccinate populations. And again, that sounded crazy um, back in the 2000s when it was first being forwarded. It sounded crazy to most people, but uh, obviously seems to take on new significance now. And actually, I see that that um, that mechanism of drafting sort of just template legislation with fill-in-the-blank spaces that are then passed by individual state governments, I see that as the model through which something approaching global government without actually being global government can function. Uh, For example, the World Health Organization can create similar draft legislation that could then be forwarded in parliaments and and congresses around the world um, so so that it looks in each uh, jurisdiction where it's being forwarded. It looks like something local something that our you know our leaders have come up with this uh, and if people don't know the template that they're working from they might never know that this is actually part of an international agenda and that's really what i see as the next stage Of the formation of this biosecurity state that I'm warning about is the formation of the global pandemic treaty, which late last year, they've already started talking preliminary talks to hold a conference to start talking about the idea of signing a global pandemic treaty, because as we've seen from the haphazard nation state response to COVID-19, there's so many different countries that are passing different laws and nothing's harmonized and some places are shutting down borders and they all have different restrictions and no we need a global system for this type of scenario so i i very much see that as the next stage of what we're going to live through right now um as the covid19 scare starts to recede uh and they 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 take their foot off the gas pedal. There, it's not that they're stopping the agenda. It's just that they're going to divert the public's attention while they put the legislative framework in place for essentially a global governmental grid.
0: Right, because it, it really it's presented kind of as a as a means to manage health related situations, but obviously much more devious or encompassing um, agendas are at hand here. And you look at things like the. Um, CBDC and the social credit systems, and how all of these things combine together, really do form some sort of a a chain on humanity that I don't know. It's it's really hard to even think about how to avoid that kind of control. And um, what are what are your, some of your thoughts about that that all encompassing approach? I mean, you've you've been talking about it, and but I know my audience isn't as familiar with the idea of the biosecurity state or that term even.
1: Um, Right. Yeah. Well, we cannot possibly even begin to start formulating some sort of uh, thoroughgoing response to this, to derail this agenda or to stop it in its tracks until we understand that there is an agenda. And I really do think that uh, unfortunately as, f- as much as the past couple of years, uh, general awareness and consciousness of these issues has been raised amongst a lo- large portion of the public, and now that's being framed as these uh, right-wing neo-Nazi, fascist, whatever, um, freedom truckers and other such things, and they're trying to be smeared by the, the mainstream, I think a lot of people are seeing through that and realize that there are some very insidious agendas at play here. Um, so I think people are starting to wake up to this, but I don't think they have really realized exactly, as you say, how every piece of this puzzle fits together almost perfectly. And even myself, as someone who's been researching and talking about these things for 15 years now, uh, it was really in the creation of my, who is Bill Gates documentary, uh, that I released in 2020, uh, as this was starting to unfold, that was when All of the pieces of the agenda really started to fit together in my head in ways that I hadn't contemplated before. And one of those things that struck me was the relationship between vaccination and digital ID was not – those were two pieces of the puzzle. I saw them individually. I never – understood how how they fit together until I started researching into, well, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and what are they funding? Oh, things like Gavi the Vaccine Alliance, which is literally a an alliance of vaccine manufacturers and governments who are working together to build healthy markets for vaccine manufacturers for big pharma. That's literally what they say, making healthy markets. Um, and they are working together with things like ID2020 and other such initiatives to form digital identification systems because, of course, We need to know and keep track of everyone who's receiving these vaccines that we're going to distribute to everyone in the world. So, of course, vaccination fits right in with digital identity. And then that will fit together with the digital payment systems, which, oh, yeah, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is also there. And Bill has talked at great (laughs) length about, for example, India and how we can move towards electronic payments and tie them into the Adhar biometric ID grid. It's when you start to put all these pieces together that you really realize the total system of control that this affords to, even if you believe that the current round of uh, uh, gaggle of leaders, world leaders, so-called, are actually... If not angels, at least well meaning, well intentioned. Maybe they're bumbling and incompetent, but they're well intentioned. Well, let's just imagine at some point in the future if some actual nefarious actors got into positions of power in government. If you could possibly imagine such a scenario, what, what, what we're living through is what would be called a turnkey dictatorship, turnkey tyranny. Um, all you would have to do is to put these systems of strictures and control into place in a certain way, and suddenly what we were being told about. Communist China, look at what the Chinese are doing and look at the way they can track and surveil and completely control their population is exactly what is the infrastructure that is being laid out right now. but don't worry, we're the good guys, that would never happen over here. So I think people can start to see this agenda. But until they see how those pieces fit together, I don't think they'll really understand the urgent, dire, pressing need we have right now to stop these systems of digital identification and control from being put into place legislatively.
0: Yeah, and I know one of the uh, very well stated, thank you. And one one of the things I know that um, has been Um, brought to the forefront lately in your work, too, has been this idea of the ruling uh, governing by a state of emergency all the time. And you brought up Giorgio Agamben and his book, State of Exception. And um, I just wanted to read a quick quote from Giorgio and then ask for you to um, give a little background on that state of exception. The quote is, modern totalitarianism can be defined as the establishment by means of the state of exception. Of a legal civil war that allows for the physical elimination not only of political adversaries, but of entire categories of citizens who for some reason cannot be integrated into political system. End quote. And you were talking about what a a deep dive this book is, but how important it really is. And when I look around and see well, reflect on even the last twenty years since nine eleven, just this constant everything's always an emergency. We've, we've always got to do this right now or else we're not going to be safe. And um, do you want to give a little more background on, on that topic?
1: Yes. And how relevant is it now? I as it, It's funny. This is, I mean, it seems almost tangential or unimportant, but actually I think this is important. I uh, started forming the idea for putting a podcast together on states of emergency and how important it is late last year. And I had that sort of tucked away, and I knew I was going to be working on it in 2022. And I was thinking I would probably release it before the fake news awards that I released in January, but it ended up being after. And for so in that time, those few months where I was thinking about this episode and how to put it together and how to try to summarize Agamben's arguments and and that sort of thing, I I knew that I needed something that would... Put the relevance of this in the minds of the listeners. Well, you know, it all it, is, it gets very philosophical and abstract. And as literally the week as I'm working on putting this together and how do I introduce this subject, the Ottawa mayor declares a state of emergency to deal with the freedom convoy. Uh-huh. And so yeah. that was... I mean, that was highly relevant and very interesting. So, of course, I used that in the episode. And then I released the episode. And about 24 hours after I released the episode, the Ontario government was declaring a state of emergency. And about three or four days after I released the ep- the episode, of course, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau has declared, uh, the, invoked the Emergencies Act to c- declare a national emergency in Canada. So... Uh, very interesting how things like that come together. And incidentally, I've been working for a couple of weeks on the idea of a podcast about uh, the digital uh, uh, payment structure and how important it is to start forming alternative payment structures right now. And I, I, my tentative title, as I saw things developing in Canada and we had the GoFundMe situation and then the Give, Send, Go situation and, and all of that, I, I came up with the title Give, Send, Gone. And so I had that in my head, and then just a, a couple of days ago, the Give Send Go website was uh, hacked and redirected to Give which was this hacker's site for you know taunting the 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 would be donors to that that uh, crowdfunding campaign. And I say that's not because not not because I have some crystal ball and I see into the future and I know what's coming, but because if you really are paying attention to what is happening, I think you really can truly understand the trajectory and you can start to see how things are unfolding. And unfortunately, it's a bit of Cassandra's curse because, again, I've been talking about a lot of these issues for a decade and a half now. It's only now becoming apparent in the news cycle to most average people, and it's only starting to hit home for people. I wish people had been activated on these issues for a long time before that. Having said that, yes, state of exception, state of emergency, an incredibly important concept and one that I am arguing is becoming the 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 new paradigm of governance in the twenty first century, the formerly liberal Western democracies, freedom and uh, everyone has a say in government, etc., is being evaporated and being eviscerated, being torn apart right in front of our eyes and has been, I would say since the dawn of the 21st century in the formative crucible of nine 11 and all of the emergencies that were declared in the wake of that, including of course, the national emergency declared by Bush on September 14th, 2001, which is a year long emergency, which is then renewed every single year has been renewed now for 20 straight years by Bush, by Obama by uh, Trump and now by Biden. Every single president has renewed that emergency every single year. And of course, why? What is the point of that? Uh, it is to uh, to start the process, as Agamben st- states in that quotation that you read uh, there, uh, it is about eliminating, not just eliminating individuals or uh, people perceived to be threats to the state, but entire classes of persons. Um, at legally uh, eliminating them, getting rid of them. And uh, Agamben gives the example because he was writing his book on states of exception, which is a very big, deep dive into the history of this concept of how emergencies are used to declare states of exception. So we have this constitution or we have this framework of governance, but there's this emergency, this pressing need. So we'll appoint a dictator, as they did, for example, in Roman times to deal with emergencies. Um, So he's going through that history, but he's writing it in 2005 and clearly writing it in right in the middle of that transitionary period where the Patriot Act and other things were starting to um, coalesce in the United States into a paradigm of governance. And he was writing, for example, he wrote specifically about how um, Bush's orders, executive orders, uh, stripped enemy combatants of their legal status. Even U.S. citizens who are declared enemy combatants are stripped of their uh, common legal status as, as citizens and are then treated in this quasi-legalistic zone that's also quasi-military but doesn't conform either to the legal code or to the law, uh, military tribunal laws. And that's that's what starts to happen. You start to get this class of people who are just treated completely othered from the traditional legal order and thus basically you can do anything you want to them and that's why it is becoming more common for every um, every incident to be turned into an emergency to give the executives of various governments the ability to enact Uh, powers and to strip rights from people in ways that they otherwise couldn't possibly do, legally speaking. So this is an incredibly important issue. And um, I I know people will think that it's just sort of just related to what's happening in Canada right now. It's just some sort of, but it is not a transitory phenomenon. This is not just important for the entire past couple of decades. But I think going forward from here, we are going to see this more and more. And it's very interesting to watch the different narratives of these emergencies start to merge. And I've seen this coming for the past couple of years now. They've started to merge the right-wing extremist insurrectionist January 6th type of extremists in the U.S. with ISIS and the terror threat, and we saw that culminate in last, last September in a uh, Department of Homeland Security bulletin that was literally combining those threats and saying that, you know, right, right-wing white supremacist whatevers are collaborating with with ISIS terrorists now and that's a that's a new yeah. threat vector for the US government. I mean, it's interesting all the emergencies start to converge and once you get the bioterror paradigm really in 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 the public consciousness, then you really have the combination of the, I think the two major emergencies of the 21st century so far.
0: Well, the, in, the invisible enemy is preferable to the one you have to have film of and uh, you can manipulate statistics, as we know has been done throughout this entire uh, pandemic scenario, in, in just unbelievable ways. And the the cognitive dissonance that I see, even as a student um, studying nursing, in people that I know know better somehow are caught up in this in this mass, and it, it's. It's been a little outrageous and was really part of the reason why I decided finally I just I'm going to go crazy if I don't start a podcast myself and start at least talking about the things that I'm seeing. Um, I know that there's a there's a certain feeling when people see like this uh, trucker convoy is a freedom convoy in Canada and they see people protesting around the world and stuff. And I know that there's this almost. Hopium feeling. And I know in your January 31st, uh, 2022 newsletter, you titled it Do Not Go Back to Sleep. This is not the end. And um, one of the things you mentioned is the OSHA outlines um, to back off a little now. And, you know, there's kind of a give and take, but then to try and permanently codify the vaccine mandates and regarding this idea that, okay, you know, people are standing up. It's okay now. My question to you is: What does the Return of the Jedi have in common with this topic?
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the the narrative device I used to frame that newsletter. For people who have seen Return of the Jedi, they'll know what I'm talking about. But long story short, of course, the Star Wars original trilogy ends with the defeat of Darth Vader, who turns out not to be the pure evil that uh, we had uh, assumed him to be throughout the series. But at any rate, he he's gone. So the Ewoks are celebrating much like say the Munchkins celebrating over the uh, death of the wicked, Witch of the West. Is that the one that dies anyway? (laughs) And of course there's a celebration and they're all happy, but, we also see it from Luke's perspective, who knows what has happened and his father has just died and he had turned to the good side at the end and all of this. So it's a kind of bittersweet moment. Um, but I think the point is, uh, yeah, I, I sort of see that when I see people celebrating. Oh, OK, they're they're leaning, they're going back on some of these COVID-19 restrictions. They're starting to take their foot off the gas pedal. I just I, I, I'm not a, opposed to people celebrating. In fact, I think we should celebrate and and acknowledge and not not uh put the 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 gray lining on every silver cloud <laughs> which is what some right. people tend to do which is uh i think self-defeating because as human beings we do need hope like genuine hope not hopium we need actual hope at, to highlight things that are going well and to uh, celebrate them and to move forward and press forward on those things but at the same time if that leads to inaction and people getting complacent that that is the danger so absolutely i think in the certainly in the coming year or two we will see the, the gradual easing of restrictions and we'll see this, this covid-19 will not be the one and only thing we talk about anymore and it will start to fade um from the the daily news cycle but that does not mean that the biosecurity state has been derailed and i don't want people to Fall asleep on this issue um, because there will be no end of other issues to be distracted by. Um, but this one will continue to work. And exactly as you were pointing out there, the OSHA mandates being a good example for people in the US, because as we all know, Biden tried to order OSHA to um, in, uh, inflict a vaccine mandate on big businesses, businesses of more than 100 employees. And they tried to forward that um, in a special again using emergency uh, cover they they said it's an emergency so we don't have to go through the normal process of getting public comment and all of that um, that was struck down by the courts who said well no you, you have to actually get public comment you have to go the, the proper way so OSHA withdrew the mandate yay but if you read the fine print of that withdrawal they say no we're we're, we're withdrawing it so that we can work on finalizing a permanent COVID-19 healthcare standard, which is insanity. If you think about it, permanent standard for this, this, this crisis that we're living through in this particular moment. I mean, whatever you think about what's happening right now, at, at any rate, everyone acknowledges that pandemics do end at some point. So why would That's you make right. a permanent healthcare standard for it? It is because this is not about COVID-19. This is about the flexing that muscle and getting it ingrained into law. They tried to do it through the back door, but even that to a certain extent may have been a feint so that they could then withdraw and say, oh, don't worry, we're we're not going to do that. We're going to do this and then change the rules in a more thoroughgoing way. So that's the type of maneuver that's clearly taking place and is going to take place as they start their strategic withdrawal on some of the COVID-19 hype.
0: I know I just did an episode talking about domestic violence and I went through this whole domestic violence wheel, but I also covered uh, Biderman's chart of coercion. And one of those things on Biderman's chart of coercion is occasional indulgences and that use of the relaxing just a little bit like a constrictor does relax a little bit just to reposition just to tighten again and that really that idea of the constrictor kind of stuck in my mind when i was when i was just listening to you now thinking about that little bit of an indulgence but the the narrative really is moving on the snake is still going to want its meal that analogy was was just uh striking to me so i have to say uh your work is not solely exposing things. You're also been focused on Solutions Watch as of late. And I just thought maybe you'd want to do a little, I don't know, an elevator speech or just kind of fill my listeners in on on what you're doing with Solutions Watch. I think that's very important work and uh, another piece of just walking the talk.
1: Well, I think it's the really most important thing that we should be doing right now. So um, essentially, the elevator pitch would be that this is a series, a weekly, mostly weekly anyway, series uh, concentrating on things that we can do to actually derail, deflect or stop the agenda of the would-be world controllers. But perhaps more importantly, rather than framing it as something that's pitched against those people, it's more about Uh, Something that's about building up something for us, an alternative system whereby we can do what we want without worrying about what the they, them, those of conspiracy lore are doing to us. Because I think if all we do is concentrate on what the MSM, the mainstream media, is reporting to us, we end up putting ourselves more often than not in some sort of victim mentality um, uh, uh, Basically, depowering ourselves, making us just victims and we're just being toyed with and, oh, anything that they want to do, they can do to us without thinking about the fundamental fact that we really do have all the power. In fact, all the power that the, the conspirators have is the power that they have taken from us and that we willingly give to them. Each and every single day, every single day that we give money to their corporations or we give our time and energy and attention to the things they are telling us to to think or to talk about, we are thereby empowering them to then inflict their agenda on us. If we took that power back for ourselves and built up our own communities in which we did what we wanted to do without worrying about what they are doing, we could really harness that energy for incredible things. And I truly believe that. And so I think that's the, the founding ethos of the Solutions Watch series. And that's, that sounds very grandiose, but what does that look like in reality? That's the question. So the series itself concentrates on some of the very big questions about freedom of speech and what form of protests can take place and organizations and, and whatever, court actions, whatever it is that can change the, the, the game at a fundamental level. It also talks about the really small individual things that we can implement in our own lives. Sometimes things that might seem Trivial on the big scheme of things, but things that can help us get towards freedom and away from uh, tyranny, essentially. And I think that's uh, it's important to keep both things in mind because every step, every long journey. Yes, you need to know the long journey. You need to know where you're going and why you're trying to go there. But you also need to take each and every single individual step. And sometimes it may not look important, but I think each step is is uh, important. And uh, also, I I think that we have a tendency. Uh, another way to demotivate people is to Keep them concentrated on the you must look for the one big solution that will change everything overnight. And if if this doesn't do that, then it's not worth doing, which is another way to basically stop people from taking any sort of meaningful movement towards freedom, because there is no amazing sweeping action that's going to change everything overnight. And that's the hopium, I think, that people get addicted to. Oh, don't worry. You know, the sealed indictments or whatever it is, whatever. Uh, narrative is going around. Just wait for that and everything will change. And then you don't have to do anything to change your life, which is of course much easier and probably what most people really deep down want to hear. I'll just wait. And this ma- magic white helmet force or whatever is going to come in and save the day. Well, I'm here to say yeah. that I don't think we should wait for that. I think we need to take actions. And so that's what I'm trying to put out on the table every week with Solutions Watch. Well,
0: thank you for that. I I really, um I, that was one of the things that really I found inspiring as of late, because it's so easy to point things out that are going wrong in the world. And so to step up and to build a platform and, and uh, start focusing on solutions, it's like I, his name escapes me right now. He was a, a, a Polish man, but he was t- he talked about how totalitarianism is beaten by parallel structures. And those parallel structures are, like you were saying, it's those things that we can do and those systems we can build, whether it's community or uh, not these large scale um, projects or or movements that can easily be co-opted and infiltrated by the same people you're trying to escape. So um, do you have any final thoughts or observations or suggestions for uh, myself
1: and my listeners? Well, uh, just picking up on what you said there, I think there's almost a dual trap when we're talking about those types of movements towards freedom, um, which is to say that, yes, of course, I I think it is important to state that those big movements and those big ideas, uh, 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 precisely because they tend to be big movements that are headed by a few people, will inevitably either be co-opted or uh, decapitated in some way, whether figuratively or literally um, with assassination or what have you. Uh, I think the powers that shouldn't be have ways to control uh, movements like that, which is why I think it suggests that decentralized networks are the way forward. Um, that is that is something that cannot, they, there's no way to put the lid on that. If you have a decentralized network where there's no single person who's leading everything, uh, that's That's uh, not a movement per se. That's more like an idea or an ideology, which I think is what this boils down to at the end of the day. But the other thing to state is that that doesn't necessarily mean – so I see, for example, um, the way that that people will interpret um, what is happening. They'll look at something like the the Freedom Convoy in Canada and then – even as it's happening, even before anything has happened, they will poo-poo it and say, well, then this is all controlled opposition and it's just meant to lead to, and then they declare the Emergencies Act and they start seizing people's funding and they say, see, see, it was all controlled from the start and this is exactly what they wanted to have happen. Um, I think that's a, a, not a fruitful way of, of thinking about these things either because it neglects the fact that, yes, no matter what actually happens no matter what spontaneous thing really happens and i i I can't speak obviously to the people who started the freedom convoy idea or the people who claim to be leading it but i can speak to the fact that there are genuine canadians tens of thousands hundreds of thousands perhaps millions, who uh, at least support the idea of what these people are doing. And those are real people who really do uh, are energized by what's happening right now and are realizing and understanding the need for it. So no matter what happens, of course, the agenda setters, the narrative makers in the mainstream media and the uh, politicians and people with um, large platforms are going to spin it towards their agenda, no matter what happens. So I don't think we should sit there in in judgment waiting for, oh, well, what's the MSM going to say about this? How are they going to spin this for their agenda? Of course, they're going to do that. The point is what we can do about it and then how we can adapt to what is happening. Um, At the very least, A lot of people are now realizing the dangers of the coming cashless society where the government will literally be able to turn off your ability to buy and sell based on the fact that, oh, you supported this protest. You didn't say the right yeah. thing at the right time. At least now, a lot of people are aware of this issue and are now actively looking for solutions. That in in a way is actually a win because I would rather have people realizing the, the depth of the gravity of the situation we're in right now rather than sort of blissfully going along, never being aware of this. So I I again I don't want to, I I I think there's so many different ways to demotivate people and get people not to act and be cynical. I don't want that to take hold. Uh-huh. But then you also have to fight the hopium um, that, you know, just sit back and everything will turn out all right. So it's a fine line to walk. It's not a popular position to say, no, we're going to have to work hard (laughs) and it's not going to be fun and uh, things are going to get worse before they get better. That's not never going to be a popular thing to say, but I think it's necessary to say.
0: Well, the always articulate and well thought response I I expected. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your insight and your willingness to share the time with us. Uh, it's, it's been a real honor and a pleasure, sir. And I hope to speak to you again sometime in the future. Thank Thank you you so much.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, there you have it, my friends. What an absolute privilege and a joy to be able to discuss these issues with someone so obviously well-versed in the subject matter at hand. And the opportunity was such a blessing. And to agree to an interview with someone as green on the scene as myself only speaks to the character of the man. I'm going to be following up on some of these pressing matters with you all uh, as we move forward. I encourage you to visit CorbettReport.com and investigate some of these topics on your own. Remember, it's not about having all the answers, but it is about being willing to ask questions and think outside the box. We have to challenge the narratives in order to remain free. It's It's not about rebellion. There are those who are seeking to consolidate power into the hands of the few and really have complete control of the population in unprecedented ways. This is how societies find themselves in the grip of totalitarian rule. And this steady stream of emergencies that are used as justification for the suppression of our rights and the inherent value of human life is something we need to understand is happening, demonstrably so. And as James stated, even if the people instituting these exceptions to the rule are well-intentioned, the precedents that are being set create the inevitable turnkey totalitarianism. I'm going to end with a reiteration of the quote by Giorgio Agamben. Modern totalitarianism can be defined as the establishment, by means of the state of exception, of a legal civil war that allows for the physical elimination, not only of political adversaries, but of entire categories of citizens who for some reason cannot be integrated into the political system. End quote. The time to sit on the fence and be a spectator is over. Please ask questions, pursue truth, sift and winnow, and know that you are not alone. For all you listening, you are valued, you are loved, and you are worthy. God bless and good night.